The thrill and excitement of March Mania is here, and DraftKings Sportsbook, one of America's top-rated sportsbook apps, is giving new customers a shot to turn 5 bucks into $150 instantly in bonus bets with any college basketball bet. You can find all the lines and available odds, of course, at the DraftKings Sportsbook app. North Carolina listeners, don't forget, DraftKings Sportsbook is now live in your state. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app and use code SBNFL. New customers can bet 5 bucks to get $150 instantly in bonus bonus bets only at DraftKings Sportsbook with code SBNFL. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 8778-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash bball for eligibility, deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. Hi, this is Jim. And this is Bax. Check out our podcast, The Step Over, Liberty Ballers Podcast Network, for all of your Sixers needs. Player analysis, game breakdowns, who would look coolest in a headband, and more. Subscribe to Liberty Ballers podcast feed on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, and check out The Step Over, a podcast about Sixers basketball. Mostly. Welcome into the QB SCO show. This is episode six brought to you by the fine folks at SB Nation and Bleeding Green Nation. I am your host, Michael Kist. Follow me on Twitter at Michael Kist NFL. That's K-I-S-T. As always with me to break down the upcoming enemy quarterback for the Los Angeles Rams. The topic is going to be Jared Goff, of course. To help me break that down, as he does every week, is QB1 in my heart. He is Mark Schofield. Follow him on Twitter at Mark Schofield. Mark. How you doing, brother? Mr. Kest, always a pleasure to be with you. And we're going to open the show, as we always do, with a bit of a historical reference for our dear listeners. And as you know, Michael, I mentioned this in last week's episode, I always get sort of engrossed in video games and then trying to learn more about the era. So right now, I'm currently reading a book, Blood and Thunder by Hampton Sides. It's this epic story of Kit Carson and the conquest of the American West. And what was interesting about Christopher's sort of upbringing and his emergence as a hero sort of on the frontier was at the age of 16, he was signed on to be an apprentice for a a man who made saddles, a man by the name of David Workman. But this was too boring for Mr. Carson. So he secretly signed on as a laborer with a large merchant caravan headed west to Santa Fe from where he was in Franklin County, Missouri. So he just ditched his job. And his boss, by law, David Workman, was required to post a notice of the guy skipping town. So he posted a notice in the Missouri Intelligencer, the local paper, announcing his apprentice flight. This would be the first time that Kit Carson's name would ever appear in print. And the notice read as follows. Notice is hereby given to all persons that Christopher Carson, a boy about 16 years old, small of his age, but thick set, light hair, ran away from the subscriber living in Franklin, Howard County, Missouri, to whom he had been bound to learn the saddler's trade on or about the 1st of September last. He is supposed to have made his way towards the upper part of the state. All persons are notified not to harbor, support, or assist said boy under the penalty of law. One cent reward will be given to any person who will bring back the boy. Now, the reason why I wanted to begin with this is thus. Workman basically helped his guy skip town. Because if you read between the lines, he posted it a month after Carson skipped town. And in addition, he 
gave the reward of a whopping one cent, which even <laughs> back in that day was not a big reward. So basically what he did was, I know what you want to do. I'm going to help you do it. And I'm going to do that by doing what I'm required to do under law, but giving you a late start. And oh, by the way, I'm directing people north while you went west. <laughs> and so the reason why I bring that up is we're talking about a team from the west and a quarterback who is getting a ton of help from his head coach. Ooh. I have a little bit of a different historical reference here about a different situation going on because there's some news about Carson Wentz and the reference oh, no. is Nathaniel Hawthorne's historical novel, The Scarlet Letter. Oh boy. This is about Nick Foles, of course. In light of the news that Carson Wentz has been dealing with back spasms and is not expected to play against the Rams per Ian Rappaport just recently on a timeline, just put that out. I have asked those on Twitter who believe in Nick Foles as the better option all along to stand up, let themselves be known, and to pin a scarlet F on their shirts for easy identification. My goodness. <laughs> um, I see I've waded into a little bit of a, a different sort of atmosphere than I expected because I didn't see the fact that Carson wasn't even expected to play. I didn't see that little downgrade in the past like 10 minutes. Yeah, so I mean, there's a chance they might just shut him down because he's he was dealing with back spasms. He was on the report week seven and week eight as well. So this has kind of been an ongoing type of thing. And I'm not sure if that's like something that tends to happen when you're coming off of like a, a like major knee surgery. I don't know if there's like a correlation there, but it's obviously been bothering him for a while now. So we're going to be tracking that situation. That could get real interesting. And Mark, I'll ask you, because I'm of the opinion that if they do, sh let's just say they they shut Wentz down for the season, the Eagles still have a slight glimmer, a half a percent chance to get into the wild card. I, I'm of the opinion that you play Foles until that hope is completely gone. And then in that situation where you're out mathematically eliminated, you then see what Nate Sudfeld has to offer because he played really well in the preseason. He did play really well in the preseason. In fact, you know, you and I talked about it because his best game in the preseason was probably against the New England Patriots when if he saw cover one, man, he was on, he was letting it go because if he saw cover one and he had vertical routes on the boundary, he was going to, you know, take a shot and he dropped them in perfectly well. And, you know, I, I think that's the probably the smart approach. You know, I think that let's say – and this is just a hypothetical. I don't want you know our, our lovely listeners to get down my throat here. But say Foles goes this week and they lose and now they're out because they get to win all three games. I think then you might give some shot to playing Foles in week 16. Let's remember here, the 2019 quarterback class, if it gets a boost from both Herbert and Haskins coming out, even we have reservations about them, is not the best class. And so Foles might draw some attention as well. So you've got to see what you've got in both of these guys. You've got to showcase Foles to one, in one sense, and you've probably got to showcase Sudfeld and see if he can be your backup next year if you do move on from Foles. And so you might want to play both of those guys. Maybe you play Foles in the first half and then week, the rest of week 16 and 17 is Sudfeld. Maybe you decide, look, we've seen enough. But yeah, I think you've got to at least see both of those guys because you might be showcasing them for trades into the offseason. This is crazy news because you, you, you go through your day and you're like, okay, I'm going to write about this and I'm going to write about that. And this is what I'm expecting. And then like this whole monkey wrench comes Can in we and it kind of throws everything off. You probably didn't want to dive into this, but I'm going to force our hand here because I feel like I need to drop a take here. And I'm, I'm seeing some references Ooh. now because people are saying sort of, oh, Carson Wentz's injury prone. You know, he had the, you know, the knee injury last year. Now he's got his back injury. He was injury prone coming out of college. And can we sort of – yeah. Let's talk about it. 
push back on the idea that Carson Wentz is an injury-prone quarterback because this idea that he was leaving North Dakota State as an injury-prone quarterback, I think, deserves some criticism because he broke his wrist his senior year, early in his senior year. I think it was around mid-October when he broke it. And the thought was at that time that, look, he was done for the year. He works himself back into a position where he can come and play in the national championship game. And yes, he was rusty. Yes, there were some injuries, concerns there because he was coming back from a broken wrist. Yeah, He still played well. They win the national championship game. An injury-prone player might at that point say, I'm done till the combine. He goes down to Mobile and competes in the senior bowl. And yeah, it's a bowl game, scouting game. They're not really hitting him in practice or anything like that. But he could have easily shut it down. No. Last year, the ACL injury has that happened. He's running the football, okay? It's, I don't want to say a freak injury, but it's one of those plays. Well, it's a football play. It's going to happen. This idea that he's an injury-prone quarterback, I think, is without merit. It's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. He, he missed that little bit of time in his senior year. I mean, yeah, it was a chunk of time. He also started 16 games the year before. He started 11 games the year before when he became the starter. He was in eight games before. He he was not injured for any point in time before that with anything even close to any kind of significance. And he played his entire rookie year. I don't I don't get yeah. where this narrative is coming. Find me for, for this person. And I saw this tweeted out and I responded to it. And the person that tweeted it out was Ben Livingston at BLive94. This person tweeted it out, and I, and I came back at him. So I want him to find me the scouting report that says that teams are concerned about Carson Wentz's injury history because I guarantee you it is not there. So creating this narrative that all of a sudden he's oh, he's always been an injury-prone court, it's, it's ridiculous. It's insane to me. It's insane to me. So – Moving on, Jared Goff. <laughs> let's uh, let's dig into our upcoming opponent for Week 15, Los Angeles Rams quarterback Jared Goff. Of course, let's as we do with these quarterbacks, as we, with these younger quarterbacks. Anyway, let's talk about the pre-draft process. As you've noted before, you were a believer in the top of the 2016 NFL draft class with the quarterbacks. You had Jared Goff, QB one. You had Carson Wentz, QB2, and you weren't like those other cowards afraid to plant the flag on any quarterback. You liked them both. Uh, it's funny looking back on that because, you know, you get Patrick Mahomes and he caught all this flack because Texas Tech quarterbacks always put up these gaudy numbers with the air raid and none of them had panned out in the NFL. As a, And we can see now that that notion was wrong. And Goff came from a bear raid system in California, which I would argue was a simpler version of the Texas Tech air raid, and yet was seen as the quote-unquote pro-ready quarterback, which was fascinating to me. But the point is, with so many offenses now incorporating air raid concepts into their scheme, it didn't scare you off of Goff. So what did you like about his game coming into the draft? Yeah, and what was interesting about Goff, and Mahomes didn't get the credit for this that Goff did, which I think is a very interesting sort of dichotomy. We don't need to go down that road. But when Goff was in California, he was given the freedom to make calls at the line, to adjust the protection, and to do all those sort of things pre-snap at the line of scrimmage that a lot of quarterbacks coming into the NFL don't have the background doing. It's part of the reason why one of the guys that I will continue to scream about from the rooftops is Brett Rippon, because you watch him at the line of scrimmage and you see him adjust protection, moving people around, sliding protections, making checks, making audibles. That's the kind of stuff that you do need to do. 
Goff was doing that at California. When you drop that into some of the things that he's able to do from a trait and an execution standpoint, the intermediate accuracy, precision, sort of pushing the ball to the boundaries and downfield. I love his ability to throw the corner out. One of the things that I loved about him and looking at my scouting report on him, that was one of the plays that I highlighted, sort of that one read type thing that I used to do in the old scouting reports where, you know, he's throwing a triangle concept on a corner route against San Diego State. They're showing him that radar alignment that we've been talking about this year. A lot of teams using that where you don't know who's coming in from where. He deciphers that pre-snap, trusts his protection, subtle little slide, footwork, touch, anticipation, and trajectory on the throw to throw the corner route, one of the tougher routes to throw. And so that those are some of the things that I really loved about Jared Goff coming out. And those are some of the things that we're starting to see with him, albeit with some help from Sean McVay, which we can get into. You mentioned McVay. Well, he didn't have the luxury of having McVay for his rookie season, and he struggled a lot as a rookie. So it's obvious question time. This doesn't need a ton of qualifying. We all know that uh, Goff looked like a scared pup in his rookie year compared to his sophomore campaign. We all know that Sean McVay influence and, and, and all of that. But what specifically changed in Goff's game that allowed him to be that much more successful and take a rather large step in his development? And how do you kind of parse that out from what McVay gave him that played to his strengths versus what Goff himself just kind of improved on as a quarterback? The thing that got improved was processing speed and play speed. And the way you sort of, at least for me, when you see quarterbacks start making anticipation throws in the NFL, that's when you know the game is sort of slowing down for them. And a great example of this was, you know, that route design that every year there's like a route design or two that just sort of catches the NFL. And last year it was that fly sweep from the, the flanker and then the halfback seam up the middle. We saw the Chiefs hit that for a huge play against the Patriots in week one. Well, Sean McVay copied it. There was their week four, I think, game against Dallas where you get somebody in that fly sweep motion and you get Gurley up the seam. And Goff throws a I don't, I don't know if it went for a touchdown, but Goff hits Gurley on it for a huge play, and he releases his throw before Gurley has even approached the second-level defenders, let alone cleared them. And when you see quarterbacks start making those throws before breaks, throwing receivers open, things like that, that's when you know when the game is sort of getting slower for them. They're speeding up their mental process. That was sort of the big jump from year one to year two with Jared Goff. And McVay did some things from a schematic point that helped him, the incorporation of motion, using motion to give him better pre-snap cues and indicators. And he also did some things from some rule boundary pushing perspective where they would use tempo to get him to the line of scrimmage before that 15-second clock cut off the microphone and the helmet so he could tell him, look, remember, this is what you're looking for. That's what you're looking for. You're seeing more and more coaches do that. For example, just this past week, you saw the mic'd up with Kyle Shanahan, with Nick Mullins and George Kittle and all that stuff. One of the things that I loved about that was they had a red zone fade route, and you could hear Kyle Shanahan reminding him, look, if you get one-on-one and like the matchup, throw the fade route right before the microphone cuts off in Mullins' helmet. <laughs> these are the things that these coaches can do to use tempo, to remind their quarterbacks of the last things that they want to tell them before the ball is snapped. Be reminded 20 seconds before the play clock runs out of your reads, your looks, and what to look for is a huge boost to a quarterback, and more and more teams should be trying things like this with their younger QBs. So with that, as you go through the evolution of Jared Goff, he takes that big leap forward in his sophomore campaign, and then he works into this season. He's having a really good season overall. 
But in the last two weeks, we have seen some drop-off from Goff. After five straight games with a QB rating over 110, 14 touchdowns and one interception in that span, we have seen him struggle bad against the Detroit Lions and the Chicago Bears. Against the Lions, 17 for 33, 207, one tutty, one pick. Against the Bears, 20 for 44, 180, no tutties, four interceptions. Uh, and you look at the, you look at the tape of these past two games. Like the first inter- interception for Goff against the Lions was just ugly and felt unnecessary on first and ten. Uh, the first and twenty interception against the Bears, he gets bumped into, but it looked like a questionable window end decision anyway. The third quarter interception is so late in the read, and that one goes to Kyle Fuller, gets picked off. Mark. I've only gone through his last two games of film so far as far as like an in-depth look as we prepare for this week against the Rams. But is it me or has he just been buns these last couple of weeks? It hasn't been good the last couple of weeks. And I think what we're seeing is the NFL starting to catch up a little bit with what McVay has been doing. And, you know, what McVay has done from a schematic standpoint this year and we referenced it last year as well, is the use of motion. They use motion more than anybody else in the league. There was actually, I think it was Keegan Abdel who works for NFL Next Gen Stats who tweeted out a screenshot of the uses of motion and the building that was from a game, I, I forget which game, but showing how motion and the use of it NFL-wide has jumped you know, by at least 5% every single season since 2013. And building off that, Keegan put out a graph that showed just how much the Rams use motion and how much more they use it than anybody else in the league. And one of the things that McVay loved to do was use that sort of jet sweep, fly sweep motion, not just as, you know, a here and there type thing, but they would build it into a bulk of their plays, mostly as eye candy, mostly as misdirection, mostly as something to do to set up other stuff, whether it's just play action or boot action or whatever. And teams will find themselves chasing that motion. And thanks to a discussion that you and I had, as well as our great friend Bryce Rossler, who you can follow on Twitter at B-T-R-O-S-S-L-E-R. He's looking for employment. So if you want to give Bryce a job, hit him up. Now, what we've seen the past two weeks is Detroit, Chicago just ignored it. They said, look, we're not going to chase ghosts. That's stupid. It's pointless. We're just running ourselves out of position. So they would ignore motion. The Lions got hit with it on one drive in the first quarter around the 7-15 mark. McVay strung together a great series of plays using jet motion. It really burned them. So they said, forget it. We're going to ignore it. Then you start, you know, when you're not chasing the motion, you're dropping people into coverage lanes. You're getting into the front lanes. And Chicago took it a step further. And they just said, we're never even going to look at it. Look, if you want to use motion to run your tight end into the flat, who cares? That's not going to beat us. We're worried about the other stuff you're trying to set up with the uses of motion. And that has really sort of slowed down the past two weeks, the decision-making process for Jared Goff, because he doesn't have some of these open looks that he's been getting. And you've seen the play sort of fall off the past two weeks as a result. Now that the adjustment has been made by defenses to ignore that jet motion, and this is something that I'm going to be writing up for BleedingGreenNation.com as long as things kind of don't get, uh, as long as we don't get more news about Carson Wentz that throws everything into a tizzy. But if I can get to it, I'm going to write that up and I'm going to show what these defenses are doing, how they're doing it, and how they can just flat out ignore it and how it works from a visual standpoint. So that's something that I want to put up. But now that defenses are doing this 
with the Rams offense. What's something maybe that McVay can do that maybe you saw was lacking in the last two games that McVay can do to help his quarterback? Because McVay put it on himself. He said, I'm not putting my players in a position to win. It's the second straight week that he's really said that and had that kind of accountability, which is good to see, but you also have to get it fixed. What can he do to help his quarterback succeed? Where does Jared Goff win and what McVay can do? What can McVay do to unlock that? Well, there are two sort of ways to sort of answer that question. First, let's talk about where Jared Goff wins. And we referenced it a little bit when we were talking about him when he was coming out of California. Mm -hmm. And where he wins is sort of using subtle pocket movement to evade pressure in a Brady-esque manner, not in a, you know, Baker Mayfield, more athletic profile manner. And then making throws sort of downfield using touch and rhythm. You know, the vertical route to win that game against the Kansas City Chiefs, when you see that cover one look, like we were talking about with Sudfeld, you know the look that you want. You get your tight end matched up one-on-one, deep ball, touchdown. You know, those corner routes, those deep out routes, you know, sometimes off of boot action. You can use those types of plays to get him back into the rhythm that has been missing from this offense. The other thing that Sean McVay needs to do, given what we've seen the past, you know, week and a half, I'd say, you know, given how they burned Detroit with it early in that contest, make the jet motion into a weapon again. Yeah. Don't just use it as eye candy. Start throwing to the guy in the flat. You can go jet motion, boot action to one way, and then throw back to that motion man into the opposite flat. If you want to ignore him, then fine. Ignore Brandon Cooks off of jet motion in the flat. We'll burn you with it a couple of times, and then you're going to start paying attention to it again. Maybe you start running people and trailing that motion. Now then we can get the better numbers working away from that. So you need to make that motion dangerous and relevant again. Those two tracks are, I think, what we're going to see from Sean McVay. The other thing to remember is this. He really got away from Jared, I mean, not Jared Goff, from Todd Gurley in the run game last week in right. Chicago. They run probably 96, 95% of their entire offense out of 11 personnel. Right. And what that's done is given them so many light boxes, so many five, six-man boxes to run Todd Gurley against. And they run a ton out of 11 personnel, more than any other team, I believe. I'll have to double-check this week's updates. So – you got to get Todd Gurley back involved into the game plan. You don't have to be a run-heavy offense or anything like that, but make 11 personnel dangerous again in the running game. Those are the things I think that McVay should do to get this offense back on track. If you're an Eagles fan, you hope he doesn't listen to this podcast. <laughs> so with, with that, let's maybe get to a prediction on what you think is going to happen with this game. I said a few weeks ago, before these recent struggles for the Rams these last two weeks, that I said I said it privately, I'll say it publicly now, that I thought the Rams were going to light us up like a Christmas tree. Uh, how do you see the defense for the Eagles holding up against this Rams offense, especially when you consider what's going on with the secondary? Yeah, I mean, when you look at some of the, the names that are on the sidelines with injuries and on IR, it's tough to imagine the Eagles secondary sort of being able to run with some of these guys, whether it's even Josh Reynolds, who has done some nice things from an athletic profile. So I do think the Rams have the edge in this game, and I don't think that should come as a shock to a lot of our listeners. When you factor in all the external stuff that is happening as we sit here and record this show on Wednesday afternoon, the possibility that it's going to be the Nick Foles show, the fact that you're going to be going out west, the fact that it seems like you know the world might be collapsing and you've got the world up against you, it even seems like the odds might be longer for Philadelphia to pull up this game. But this is a team, this is an organization that last year they took on that underdog mantle. If there's something to cling to, it's perhaps that. That sort of us-against-the-world mentality, which organizations such as the New England Patriots, for example, have sort of used as fuel for the fire from time to time, and it's paid off for them. Maybe you cling to that. It's a <laughs> lot to cling to. Let's just put it that way. 
<laughs> yeah, it's got to be one of those outlier games. You know, remember the game with uh, it was Chip Kelly against the Patriots, and yep. nobody was giving the Eagles any kind of chance, and the Eagles the end up. Eagles and yeah, I mean that is a loss. That I would tell Eagles fans this during the Tom Brady era, the Patriots are a ridiculous fifty-eight and eleven now 59 and 12 in the month of December. <laughs> those losses, only four of those losses were at home. There was mm. a loss in the 20, 2002 season to the Jets, and that's a year after they won their first Super Bowl that they didn't make the playoffs. There was a loss in 2013 to the 49ers. That was a Sunday night game in the rain where Colin Kaepernick just played out of his mind. There was a loss in a, a week 17, I think two or three years ago, when mm. Garoppolo played most of the game because they had already locked up the number one seed. And then there's that loss to the Eagles. So out of the four home losses the Patriots have had during the Tom Brady era in the month of December, the Eagles in one of those you know outlier type games had one. Maybe they can pull up something like that again. Mark, I think that's going to do it for this with that little glimmer of hope. I think that's a good note to end on. I'm here to provide hope. What can I say? Any last last thoughts for the gentle listeners before we get out of here? Carson Wentz is not an injury-prone quarterback, and the way you <laughs> want to know that is this. There was actually – I pulled it up. There was an article from Pennsylvania Live from August 15, 2016, when it was pointed out – people might have forgotten this. Wentz suffered a cracked rib in a preseason game that year. Right. Came right back. Yeah. And Frank Reich was asked about that. Is he an injury-prone quarterback? Wentz couldn't have avoided the hit. It led to his fractured rib. He comes back. And, he, you know, honestly, if it wasn't preseason, he, he probably would have played on it anyway. He's just that type of player. So I don't count that as a significant injury. He played all, he played all games. He threw all, a every touchdown single with a torn ACL. Yo, he finished that game with a broken wrist, too. Yeah. He ended up going like 16 for 28, something like that. But he finished that game with a yeah. W. Yeah. I mean, look, it wasn't full-on – you know, the, one of the gutsiest performances I've ever seen was Phillip Rivers in that AFC Championship game. The oh, Patriots yeah. won 16-0 on a torn yep. ACL when LaDamian Tomlinson was sidelined with turf toe. Like, mm. one of the gutsiest things I've ever seen a quarterback do. Yeah. Carson Wentz throwing that touchdown just after tearing his ACL. It's not fully on the same level because he didn't play the entire game. But yeah. it's pretty impressive. So this injury-prone stuff, come on. <laughs> so that has been the QB Sco Show, Episode 6. If you like what you're hearing, go to iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. Give us five stars. Leave a written review. Let us know what you like, what you don't like. Make a funny joke. We'll read it on the show. But this has, again, been the QB Sco Show, Episode 6. Stay tuned to Bleeding Green Nation. Next up is going to be the Kiss and Solak Show, where we take a look back at the coaches' film for the Dallas Cowboys and Philadelphia Eagles game. Uh, as much as we didn't want to do it, we had to do it anyway because we want to be thorough. And uh, look out for that coming up next down the pipe. So uh, for now, uh <sighs> What I I never have an ending for this show, Mark. I mean, the, the one time we did the Al Pacino thing. Here's an ending. You know, you feel bad of and look at that Dallas game. I had to revisit that ending of that Miami game. You know what it's oh. like. And even worse, <laughs> that was the day of my daughter's fifth birthday party. So I wasn't watching the game live. I knew how it ended, and I had to then still sit down and watch that and see Gronk fall on his face at the five yard line. You want to talk about pain? That's some pain. Misery loves company. There we go. Thank you for listening. <laughs>
Hey everybody, how you doing? Well, that's good. My name is Bill Matz. I am the director of Fun and Games for Broad Street Hockey Radio Podcasts. And I am Kelly, the deputy managing editor of BroadStreetHockey.com. I'm Steph Driver, the NHL editorial manager for SB Nation. And I am Charlie O'Connor, lead Flyers writer for TheAthletic.com. And together we make up BSH Radio, one of the shows that you get at the SB Nation podcast family. We have a lot coming to you this year, and we want you to listen to our show. It is just an all-flyers, all-the-time show, so much content. I really hope you listen to it. It is a great piece of the SB Nation podcast family, along with all your other favorite sports. We all love hockey, specifically the Flyers. Let's go the Flyers. The hockey team of Flyers.